Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Welcome to the uh, concluding event for the second day of WAF 2018, uh, which I'm delighted to say is a keynote lecture by Sir David Ajay, one of the most distinguished and uh, fruitful architects, I think, of our generation, practicing today. Um, David was born in uh, Tanzania. Um, he is a Ghanaian and British. He's lived in various different parts of the world. Uh, he, his practice draws very strongly on those different experiences of parts of the world. It's very difficult to categorize, which is one of the reasons why I think he's such a, a good speaker on this subject of identity, as he said to me just now, whatever that is. Uh, well, we're going to have a lecture that will be, um, I think, give us some indications of this, and after that we can have a, a short um, discussion. Um, I don't think I need to rehearse David's great buildings, he's going to talk about them, but one of the most impressive, of course, is the Museum of African American Cultural History on the Mall in Washington, um, which uh, serves both as a frame and as a resetting of the whole of Washington, physically, uh, politically, socially, and emotionally. Uh, and that is uh, part of an ongoing series of projects, because, of course, there'll be many more to come. Um, which, uh, but that, perhaps, is the first really high summit of his achievement. And I think we'll go on to even higher. David. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, I wanted to really take you back um, over the sort of 20 years of practice and to really try and explain the, the, the concerns that, have, I've, that I've been interested in over these 20 years of practice. Uh, essentially, when I started, I, I became very clearly, very quickly, very interested in the idea that was there a way in which one could make practice without sort of building up um, a body of work which was in that sort of usual canon of a sort of biography that was trying to reveal certain tropes that would be repeated around the world or adjusted around the world. I became very interested in this idea of how much invisibility could one make as an architect and how much visibility could one make with form. Um, in reversing these two uh, positions that are quite traditional in architecture of trying to find a signature, but trying not to find a signature, it allowed me to investigate and to explore a way into projects and to create my biography um, uh, through the, the projects, but not through the sort of narrative of the signature form. And that has been an ongoing work, and, and my sort of my, I draw my creativity from that way of working. And what I'm trying to do is to not simply be a schizophrenic person in each condition, but to um, almost work out what is, the, what is the operation of the theater of the work. So how does the work um, come into being? How, um, what are the forces that bring it into being? And how does creativity shift the potential to make form in the world and to have that form have impact in a way to reset and reposition the ability of architecture to engage with its contemporary conditions, but also to be able to engage with the widest uh, audience that I may be uh, uh, dealing with. 
Um, I'll start with a very small project and then go into four big projects. I'm going to show you, I think, five projects. And a project that's very dear to me um, was a, a, a small pavilion that I made in Guangzhou um, uh, for uh, the Guangzhou Biennial. Some of you, I'm sure a lot of you have been part of it. Um, what's amazing about Guangzhou, of course, is that it's, a, it's an architectural biennial where the work doesn't go away. There's a, so there's a certain kind of power in the way in which the work is a, a constant accretion to the city that permanently adds to its evolution. So not only are people building, but also there are these experiments, and the experiments stay. And somehow there was something very uh, beautiful about that for me uh, in terms of making a project. And the then uh, uh, curator, um, uh, Nicholas, um, Nicholas Hirsch, an amazing architect that I've known for many years, um, uh, asked me and a, a series of other architects to pair up with an artist specifically to then make a work in, for the biennial. I wanted, uh, at first, you know, the instinct was maybe to find a Korean artist, but um, I actually resisted and chose a literary, uh, instead of a visual artist, I chose um, an author, um, because in a way, reading about the history of Guangzhou, which is that image, and its revolution, and its incredible... Um, uh, relationship to literature, I felt that there was something very beautiful about the way in which maybe in discussion with somebody in, who was a writer, one could start to envisage a different kind of uh, a collaboration. Taya Selassie, who at that time was very much, had released her book, Ghana Must Go, was really talking about transnational ideas, about identities and shifting polemics. And um, so we were both strangers in this place. Um, uh, in, 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 in Korea, and really the idea was really to see if we could find a project. We were left to, to make our own project. In the end, what became the inspiration was this structure and the sort of the kind of absurdity of the modern world and a kind of notion of memory. What you're looking at is an image of what um, the city believes are traditional Korean structures for viewing landscape that are reconstructed and placed within the sort of infrastructure of the city, and then um, a piece of um, sort of incredible um, infrastructure to negotiate getting from the main street down to the, the waterfront, which becomes the sort of the park, the bucolic aspect of this very hyperdense city. And we chose to remake that structure um, as an idea, um, but to think about it through the lens of the histories that we've been dealing with and, um, and, and, and our kind of rereading of, of the context. So we chose, we used the budget of the city to make a bridge, uh, stair down, and then to make a, 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 a pavilion structure to then create a new space that would be an open library, a library without walls. Um, it was the idea really was to, to place itself within this incredible literature culture where the book is revered. People leave newspapers folded beautifully on benches if you've been to Guangzhou and other people read it. It's, there's never a kind of trashing of literature, which is a very interesting cultural um, idea. So we thought, is there a way in which we could make an open structure um, that really the library would take over, the community library would take over, would fill with books. Um, the first set of books were 200 books by Tai A, chosen about the history of Guangzhou through her eyes. And then it would then become a swapping site where um, people would be able to take those books, of course, and bring other books and, and to just see what would happen over, over time, a really just an experiment. And then this would be marked by the pavilion structure, which would be above. Then the simple thing was to make the structure in two parts, uh, con cast concrete below and a timber sort of lozier above. The concrete uh, 
sort of worked with the datum of the floodplain so that it's sort of the 500-year floodplain would never go above the concrete cast structure. So it could be completely submersed in the future and the pavilion above it floating. Um, and then uh, this would just be this form. And, and the experiment was to work with the lowest budget and just to cast um, very roughly the base and then to work with the carpenters in Korea um, but not to kind of try and craft anything, but to try and develop a system where we just would order a way in which they could pin joints to then make complicated forms. Very simple sort of constructional exercises, but the scale, of course, was monolithic. This is, um, you can see the background of the entire sort of urban condition, the street, the, the, the waterfront, which is turned into a sort of park, a sort of wetland. We, everything happens, uh, riding, fishing, uh, walking, and then the sort of density of the city with its sort of hyper-construction to do with the kind of numbers of the, of the city. And then this idea that is in Korea, the sort of, you know, hyper-control and hyper uh, sort of lock, la uh, lack of control by the waterfront. So this is a bridge formally, so everybody's supposed to take this, and, um, you know, there are, no, there are no railings or safety guards, you know, and everybody understands how to use it. And then the form really is, uh, the structure is kind of placed at that axis so that it becomes this moment where um, you have this, uh, this, this uh, new sort of uh, problem, um, which is the structure which is playing between these different uh, issues. When you approach the form, here it is in its context, it's either a simple stair or it's a place to stay. It's obviously Wi-Fi'd, and you can see the books are left in there by different people. People come and rest. People perform there. Um, events happen there. The mayor uses it for events, etc. And it's just a structure that's that's around, and obviously architects visit it, etc. Um, it's then sort of taken on its own life and has operated sort of since then in the city, uh, sort of adding another quality, an ambiguous quality, a sort of way in which form can figure in a space to create um, a sort of opportunity which is neither about a pavilion nor about a, f uh, a project, but a, a, a place of opportunity and, and to see what it could do. This is from above. It's deliberately incredibly low to deal with the sort of um, ideas about landscape and revealing form, which is in um, a lot of Asian sort of relationships to a garden space. And, and actually, when we finished, the city later brought one of these structures because it's a program that they were delivering. And even though we felt that we'd sort of reinterpreted enough what we were doing, we clearly failed because they put the traditional structure back. So, and so we have the dilemma of the double at the end, sort of, you know, uh, sort of sum, summarizing this, uh, this, this exercise. Number two was um, a project we completed several years ago in, um, in Beirut. Um, those of you who know it, one of the sort of those beautiful cities, um, really uh, in the 50s, 60s, really seen as the sort of one of the great cities in the Middle East, called the Paris of, uh, of the Middle East, whatever that sort of terminology means. But anyway, uh, an incredible city um, by the waterfront, incredible um, trauma, fracture from the war, and then an incredible amount of rebuilding, considering it's next to Syria, this sort of small city of, uh, you know, now two million people um, is uh, an extraordinary hive of construction and optimism with this incredible fragility of war next to it. My client approached me um, to build on this site. Um, this, was a, uh, this is an area in part of the city on the way to Byblos, which is uh, kind of one of the great ruins in Beirut, if you know it, which is the 5,000-year-old 
sort of uh, city that still is in existence now. Um, and the site was really uh, an old fuel and uh, sort of um, industrial sort of zone. He put, on a, put up a temporary structure for many years and managed to re re rework with the city to rezone that area. And what he wanted to do was to bring his, uh, he has probably in the Middle East one of the largest collection of post-internet art, post-internet art uh, sort of from 2000 onwards. He's got over 10,000 pieces and is seen as one of the most significant players of that uh, work, of that sort of period um, in the world. Um, he wanted to make a museum for the, for the community. He wanted to share the collection, but also he's in the fashion world. He's a big fashion retailer. That's where he made his money. And so he also wanted to have his commercial operation next to it. And he said to me, David, you know, we can make two buildings, one for the museum and one for this, um, for the shopping mall. And I said, no, there was something very interesting about this paradox of these two conflicting ideas and uh, through, you know, in, in, in a way sort of in true sort of Warholian sort of uh, premonition, this idea of retail and and art coming together seemed like a funny but interesting, dangerous mix to try and test as a, as a composition. So I said, why don't we try and make one single form, but try and make a hybrid structure, something that I'm always interested in, hybrid structure with a kind of singular identity. And then let's also make a public place for the city. So what we were able to do was to uh, work with the city to make a land reclamation on the waterfront and to create a sort of um, a water break and, uh, uh, and, and a sort of uh, a space for people to be able to come to the city because since the war, the idea of public space has become very contested. There are military everywhere. But somehow using this um, um, program, we could create a secure space that families could come to and mothers and children and students, etc., and create a public space that could be right next to the water that wouldn't uh, be dangerous, but also create a, sort of another kind of space. I thought that I wanted, I was very interested in the sort of the obviousness of the, the Red Sea, the, the rooseness of water, and you know, I set my team testing how to kind of abstract geometries out of water because I was fascinated by this idea of seeing if we could work to invent a new form from that image um, to play with this old idea of the traditional Mahabiya. So this is the, the plan in the end. You can see the, the, um, the site plan with the new plaza, which is really the project his existing building is a smaller lump, and then the rectangle is the large um, art and retail space. And so, in a way, uh, the, the building for me is an excuse to, this, to make the space and to pass through the plan of the building as a gateway to the space. And the, and the passage through it really splits the building and creates a public space. In a way, in each project, I'm also trying to contest and figure um, about the way in which the reduction of the public realm means that, bu that buildings have to perform in a new uh, public way, and how do, we, how do we operationalize that within the architecture? How do we find new ground, literally? So traversing through the center is this axis, which is almost turning the building into a gateway, one side art, the other side retail. Um, and then the retail is identified with a sort of very large majolus type quality, a sort of urban room. The atrium, which in retail is usually about what you see, is turned into a spectacle of light. Um, which, you know, f fought with all the retailers who thought this was going to be the worst mall ever because nobody could see any products. And now it's probably one of the most popular places for the community. Um, and then the art space with its double cubes on the other. So this is the building and its context now. You can see the small brown volume to orientate you, looking back to the skyline. Um, and what you have is a kind of very car-like uh, operation where the cut is a ramp down and an entrance in. Uh, 
um, which creates the relationship to uh, the sort of axes of the building. And you can see how the traffic really is this extraordinary band that, you know, it's a kind of slice of what you see in LA, but probably more intense, that um, sort of goes back and forth to the city. And then this is this idea of the gauze that sort of embraces the multi-program of the space. So in the end, we also put um, a health uh, uh, space on the roof um, so that there's swimming and health and body. So that this idea that somehow in a space after war, you can find a building which can give you um, reflection, mind, retail, and then this idea of this sort of wellness uh, building, a sort of 24-hour building that wouldn't require, wouldn't require you to kind of have your security or all the other issues. This is the atrium um, in the center, sort of opposite that, which is a hyperspace, and it's just really working with reflectivity and natural light being dropped in and act artificial accents. And then the retail spaces kind of come through that, but always through it, you're always reminded of the relationship to the form that's uh, the sort of figure of the sort of body, which is the ocean. And then this idea of a kind of layered aluminum colored uh, sort of system, making a thickness through layering, which then creates um, the environmental climatic control and also creates um, the sort of signature of what the building becomes. And then through it, um, you literally pass from retail through these very tiny slots, almost incidentally, into these vast caverns of art space, where the collections on display between small spaces and large spaces um, that sort of overlook, and, and that is over 50,000 square foot, sort of working parallel with that. So you move through these spaces, and then you arrive on the roof, and this is looking up through those moments where then you kind of rise up. And then you have this moment of the spa with a, you know, all its facilities, and there's this pool overlooking the city. And then in the ground floor, you have restaurants, and then the plaza. Um, and then the plaza that we sort of made with the ability to have the waterfront come crashing to it, and now it's become this very sort of important and popular place in the city, and then the building in its context. Next, I'm going back to uh, nearly a decade ago to the sort of the first major project, large project that I made in uh, Russia. It was a big international competition. It was my first big international competition win. And it was for a, um, a management school um, in Russia. And it was at the time when uh, Medvedev was um, president and there was this little window where it felt like Russia was coming out of the Cold War. And um, there was a lot of work and projects. And um, we were one of the few uh, architects that managed to build our project. A lot of projects got canceled at that time. And um, it was really about making a private-public partnership with, um, with sort of Russian institutions and the private sector to try and make a business school that would um, celebrate their, their sort of managerial excellence. And, and, to, and, and ironically, this was the first school, we were surprised, that was going to be, all the other schools in, in Moscow were private, private schools, private business schools, and this was going to be the first school that was going to be um, uh, sort of run part by the government and, and part by the private sector. Um, the site is on the periphery. If you know Moscow, it's a sort of enlarged version of Milan in the sense that it's a series of concentric circles that radiate out. It's not a medieval city, but it's a giant sprawl. And the yellow are the incredible arteries that lead right to the center, to the Kremlin, if you know the way that plan works. Um, the site is a 27-acre site. Um, and we sort of won the competition by really basically making this very simple analysis that if you look at the bar graph, the amount of time that it was going to be out of snow um, and looking like this was going to be maximum four months, and that it would look like this most of the time, and that we didn't want to, 
we, we felt that this was the reality. This is 10 foot of snow the first day I arrived there. Um, and um, uh, we wanted to make a building that would understand this context as it's every day and not to force the institution to be shoveling snow on a quad campus. You know, most of the other schemes did the precedents that we know from Jefferson right through to, you know, East Anglia, looking at the model from the monastery right through to this idea of the campus is always an unfolding set of buildings and a landscape, bucolic. And we said that in Moscow, because of this climatic condition and also their cultural tropes of this extraordinary experimentation in architecture, maybe there was a way to make a piece of architecture that we all obviously as architects love using constructivism to try and make a hyper building, but also not just using constructivism, to also look at the traditional arch architecture of the churches, which are these very large volume buildings with a sort of micro idea of a city above the major span of the architecture, and to see if we could try and uh, make a new type of campus building, which was a, a hybrid compressed stacked. Rather than using all the site, we'd use a small, the smallest footprint we could and release the rest of the land to be a park for the university. Um, I talked about abstraction and the power of abstract, you know, the lessons that I you know, draw from about the way in which West African and Central African abstraction and fractalization has been going on for you know, 500 years, some people call it privatism, it's actually a kind of not, it's a, it's a kind of an abstraction about organizing complex systems. And the building really in its diagram became about creating that large volume space with the schools and then a series of pavilions um, which are in a way a sundial. They really operate by organizing, because it's the first building in this context, as now there's a whole campus of new buildings that are in the different parts of the park. The place is becoming urbanized. It was a suburb. I felt like if this was the first building, in, in a way, it's had to kind of perform this geographic sort of relationship of maybe becoming a kind of panoptic system that could actually talk about where you were um, and also uh, um, what orientation was here. This is looking at the site with all the kind of construction consolidated into the red volumes, all the program that they required, except for the gray, which are the villas for the professors, and then an energy center, which had to be out, even though we wanted it in, but we lost that battle. Um, the, the, the plan of the building is a, is a raft concrete structure. It looks like a steel frame structure, but it's actually a raft concrete structure, no piles. It has a three meter deep foundation, which sort of anchors it because it's a thousand foot diameter, 300 meter diameter building, and that was enough to just stabilize it. We worked with Russian sort of post-war engineers um, who were amazing at dealing with concrete in the cold weather and taught us how to, do, to make this building. We couldn't do it actually with the engineers that we traditionally brought from um, London. Um, and what we did was to say that we wanted to see in this very vast 300 meter volume building a way in which there were no dead end corridors, that wherever you went to a dead end, it was a window, and that it would also organize itself according to the light. We had a 3,000 seater auditorium, a 500 seater auditorium, and then the five different schools, which are different subsets in it. And those would be north and the northern aspect, and then the rest of the school would be in the southern exposure, so that the apertures would also re register the light. And then the building would just work. Red is really the school's daily program. You'd park underneath, rise up. This, the residences were in one single bar. Um, uh, because it's also the private sector, the auditorium had a five-star hotel next to it and then connected it through to um, the, um, the, uh, the big auditorium and its own VIP drop-off. And then the staff had their green path, which was also the way in which this, the, the communities of the building could move across and, and interact. This is the building in its context. You, uh, no, it's, so it's, uh, even though it's a concrete cast building, it's clad entirely in glass. 
These are some um, amazing images by Iwan who um, sort of took these for us. Um, and the form of the building, I mean, this is a, this is a new car park. We, we try to put all the parking underneath, but the place has become very busy. And this is a recent photo that we were sent recently where they've kind of made this new car park. But this is looking at how the building footprint works in its context. And then when it's, um, when it's in its landscape, you can see how it operates. The perimeter is a, a jogging track, and it has a sort of a landscape, a sort of artificial landscape in between the, um, the hotel bar and the residences. And then the light blue bar is the administrative library headquarters. And the gold building is west facing. This face is east. The other side is west, which is where the uh, sort of, as I call it, the, the body part is, which is gymnasiums, swimming pools, saunas, etc., for all the MBA students in the main disc. There is an ability to be able to walk all over the building and to obviously in the snow drive underneath it, rise up into its uh, centers. We designed only the main buildings and then the rest of the kind of uh, uh, sort of spaces were done for us. We designed the auditorium, which has a kind of large sort of light. And then the sort of idea of these black cores which come down with these um, large skylights that sort of ovoid skylights that kind of organize the way in which you move around the spaces. And then the interiors were done by, by, uh, by sort of Russian interior designers. Um, the way the, the building works is that the in-between space is profoundly important in that it basically is the place where all the relationships happen. And so you're in this sort of endless loop that never ends, that you keep going round, and then there are uh, schools off it, and then these vistas to the windows, um, as I explained. And then the classrooms are able to be divided, either lit or unlit. Um, uh, and then you see how the, then this is looking at the residences, where there are three floors of residences in that bar, which cantilevers over the form, and, and then you're able to go into the, to the sort of, Olymp this is an Olympic pool that allows for the Olympic team to train here, a gymnasium, um, and then the sort of garden space with its uh, forms. And then the school has been graduating students since um, 2008, 2010, sorry, and then the building and its context now. Um, two projects more. Um, we, uh, I'm going to take you to a project that I'm working on now to give you a sense of it, and I'm going to end on the Smithsonian. This is a project that we're doing right now in Ghana, which is uh, quite a controversial project right now in the country. But um, essentially, we have there in Ghana right now, there's a very interesting uh, sort of agenda of, of using architecture and building the, there's a sort of, we have a leader who is very interested in building the nation and using architecture because he's a lawyer that actually spent a lot of time in France and I think indirectly was very much influenced by the Mitterrand years, but has gone back to Ghana and is very interested in the idea of using architecture as a way to stimulate um, uh, an image of the city and growth. Um, we were brought right into the center to work on a series of projects. I'm really talking about the uh, cathedral project, which is this red bar, which is really probably the monumental core of Ghana, where there's this, um, the parliament building exists in the conference center. There's a park, which is a cemetery of heroes. And then the Black Star Square, where independence was sort of um, celebrated on the continent for the first time, the first country. So it's a kind of very important monumental core. And at the top end, the the president wanted to put um, a space for um, not a secular, uh, uh, sort of a space for the sacred of, this, of the nation, but he wanted a space, really a gathering hall where, where important funerals, deaths, etc., which is very much a staple of Ghanaian 
culture, West African culture sort of operates, but to see if we could also reinvent that building type and see if we could make it something which adds to the national life and reimagines this central core, which is a bit invisible to a lot of people, that this road and this axis is, is profoundly important. Um, so we came up with a project of basically we doubled the site and said we can make this building, but also maybe we can reimagine this landscape as a park um, with this building in it that deals with um, coming from the main uh, trajectory into the city, into this red bar, see that as a new national space, um, imagining, you know, after sort of decades of poverty and just sort of simple infrastructure building, making a national space as a kind of arboretum garden for the nation and for everyone to be able to come to, the building as a free space, but also to add to that program of uh, uh, this idea of a cathedral, not just being a, a sort of cathedral, but maybe it's also a museum. We put in a museum, um, uh, a music school, uh, a, a facility for um, conferencing, and then smaller Baptist uh, sort of baptistries and chapels that are also part of the, the function. So it's a, it's a kind of moment where the sacred and the profane kind of interact. This is that main axis that I was speaking about. Um, that's the site that I was talking about. This is the main axis in Accra, Liberation Road, and this is Castle Road, and Parliament is back here. This is the parliamentary buildings built in the 60s. And um, obviously this is just images of that idea of identity. This is the time when the, the sort of famous six sort of were talking about independence on the continent. The architecture of the 60s, ironically, in, in seven years, Nkrumah was able to build most of the kind of infrastructure of Ghana, which we know now because he was overthrown after six years um, by the sort of coup that happened. Um, and most of that infrastructure still is the main frame of what is, is in Ghana and um, in Accra specifically, but also all over Ghana, the fragments of them are still the kind of profound buildings that are still resonating. Um, and in making this building, I wanted to see if we could find a kind of, obviously, uh, you know, Christianity in Africa is a very hot button. Um, and I always argue that Christianity in Africa is not, obviously, the Western idea of Christianity. It's a very, it's, a, it's another mutation of the Christian thesis. It's its own kind of uh, DNA. And it works through um, a sort of lens of a combination, in my mind, of the sort of traditional religions and revelations of the culture and Christianity. Uh, even though that's never admitted, I always am struck by how that is profoundly it. Most churches are really based on the Bauman pageant in the sense they about, you know, the way in which people meet and kind of organize each other, but that's done through, you know, music and hymns and, 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 and sort of Christianity and Christ is the kind of figure that is in the center of it. But if you look at the traditional culture, the Bauman culture, which is this uh, revealing of the kings on the weekends, on the call, they call the day called Quesida, there's this idea of um, making uh, uh, architecture through fabric and this idea of a kind of pageantry of fabric uh, enclosures that create um, the space and create the kind of system. Um, that became the, a big inspiration to um, see if we could um, uh, use that as a, as a way to think about how to make the, the project. Um, and then we, I invited six very prominent artists from diaspora and also in Ghana to work with me on various aspects of each of the project from, um, from the altar through to um, all the kind of key spaces from painters to sculptors who are working on different, different aspects of the project. Um, so this is really the idea that in the, in the way the project creates the spine finally that articulates this monumental core and that the building is maybe a series, it's a 40 meter wide 
by um, sort of a 100 meter, meter wide uh, long building. It's essentially a convention hall because it it's holds 5,000 people but can extend to 20,000 people through its terracing um, as an outside space. And I wanted to really play with this idea of a series of awnings that are placed on props and that as you got closer to the center, the awnings, as it were, elevate up rather than sag, as it were, almost supernaturally elevating to acknowledge the center. And it's a very simple diagram, and then they are basically on a plinth, and then the plinth organizes all the other program. And it's an arena, it's a democratic arena, uh, it's an amphitheater that you can come onto, and then uh, you have this kind of moment where also that plinth allows you to see Accra in its context. So this is an elevational study of the building and its garden. The hall, which is quite vast, with its uh, sort of uh, sort of leaves of uh, folds of, of concrete, the elevation on Castle Road. So this idea of uh, the hierarchy of the, of the building, the section through it. So looking at the way in which the plinth organizes museum and other programs, and then the upper space is this great hall for the nation, and then the way in which it just organizes itself. This is just a quick access to take you through the different programs. So this is looking from conference center, chapels, to museum, music school, etc., through to rising onto the mezzanine to the main auditorium hall, and then how that is then enclosed with the 5,000-seater space, but then either side being the spaces that can be... Ex the facade collapses so that either side has these uh, sort, of, uh, uh, sort of abilities to have these uh, uh, sort of seating um, systems that come through, and then the form of the building in this context. So when it's finished, this is what it makes. It creates this axial system. The gardens are organized as a series of concentric um, sort of arboretum sort of systems of looking at different landscapes from the country. And then as you rise up onto this podium, which is about 15 meters above ground, you get this extraordinary view of understanding how horizontal Accra is and this uh, sort of new structure which will sit um, in it. And then this just early studies about how the, um, the space will work. There are no columns. It's a column-free space. It's 40 meters wide. So you can imagine these are kind of these extraordinary trusses working with Albert and AKT to develop this extraordinary technology. It'll be the first uh, superstructure built like this in the continent and really uh, talk about a kind of new way of making architecture uh, on the continent and the capabilities um, of, of the continent to deliver a specific architecture for its own agenda. And then lastly, the Smithsonian, which was built uh, and finished in 2016. The Smithsonian is a project um, of really, in the end, completing the monumental core of, of America through the establishment of um, the final sort of museum. It's a, it, was planned as a two, it was planned by L'Enfant, an amazing architect who used the Beaux-Arts strategy to develop Washington, but then developed the monumental core as a series of uh, sort of a very simple uh, diagram of culture, memorial, and uh, the executive, and then surrounded that with all the other sort of uh, key buildings of power, Congress, National Library, etc., and then a series of memorials that are on the Potomac River or near the Potomac River and creates this kind of extraordinary landscape. The last building that is being built, that has been built, is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And it was a 200-year sort of struggle to get this project built, um, even at the last minute after a lot of discussion. There was a debate to not have it on the mall, but to have it at another site. Um, it was actually because of President Bush at the time. Um, it was one of his last presidential wishes to allow this project to happen on the mall. And that took it out of Congress so that it no longer became a debate, but it became something that 
was just the decree of the president and nobody could argue against it. So in a funny sort of way, it's, it's always interesting for me to explain that first bit. There are lots of, there are about 200 African-American museums all over the country um, trying to kind of deal with this issue, but none of them supported in a way with the kind of weight of the Smithsonian. The museum is a new kind of museum. It's obviously not an artifact museum in the traditional sense. It's an artifact museum which is, has the providential power of history sort of loading it rather than value. Um, or spectacle, so, and then there's a lot of 20th, uh, late post, you know, 20th century arch um, archive of imagery and photography. Um, and for me, it's always beautiful to show these images where one you know, always, you know, I, I'm always asked, well, how does a, a British African boy um, know about and make a kind of architectural project on the, in America? And I'm always talking about how, you know, that it's very important to understand that the, uh, the African-American sort of uh, explosion um, uh, that happens sort of in the Harlem Renaissance right through to the civil rights is the modernity of the black community. It's really, it's really a kind of a, singul a singularity, I think, in the sense that it shows how um, these worlds are interacting and how these very key figures are all interacting with each other and erupting a new world order out of it. Freedom for the continent of Africa, civil rights in America, um, and you know, birthing human rights right now. So this is Adam Clayton Powell, this is Malcolm X, this is Martin Luther King with Nkrumah and his team debating. They went to school together in California, etc. And as I said, the providence of this museum is things like the first voting slip of the African-American, you know, of an African-American sort of family, or obviously the horror of chains of slavery, or a hymn book of resistance. And of course, you know, this idea of the diaspora and its relationships to the continent and understanding that um, is really important and clearly illustrated in this map that I love um, from the Du Bois Institute about how um, um, uh, the, the slave trade was really ma very methodical, methodological. It was commercial, so um, um, it was really mapped in terms of numbers and quantities and impacts, but not in terms of what was lost in terms of identity, cultural specificity, and nuance. Um, South America, you know, of all the slaves that made it, South America had about uh, I think three, uh, nine million slaves, the Caribbean got three million slaves, and America only got um, half a million slaves right at the end of the slave trade, um, which is now the community of you know, nearly 40 million African Americans in America right now. So it gives you a sense of understanding how that works. And in that project, because of its uh, sort of relationship to the site, I became very interested in a way to create a fiction story that was my story, but also the story that was about trying to find a way to create uh, a rejoining of the rupture that happens in the 15th century with slavery arriving um, uh, to the continent and the extraction beginning. Um, and I sort of romantically wanted to look at the Yoruba who were probably, you know, to put it within a European context, I was sort of like the Greeks of Africa in the empire building times of the 15th century. They were the most skilled craftsmen. And so I became very sort of, a, a sort of fascinated with this idea of a kind of going back to saying what would happen if that rupture was not about extraction and, and amnesia, but was about memory, what would the architecture be now? And so I became very fascinated with the karyatids of shrine structures, which are the sort of devotional structures to problematic stories, but also to this idea of labor in, in that the African-American community's entire sort of, uh, sort of relationship to America is about labor in service of the big idea. So, everything from architecture, canal building, the parliament, the city is through this. And, and for me, it's, it's, it's register in architecture is really in the ironwork of the cities of the south, 
where a lot of slaves were casting these uh, ironworks by hand because they couldn't, when people couldn't afford the uh, factory-produced castings from the north, the slaves were taught to just make them by hand, and they became very good at it. And there's no irony for me that there's a relationship between the Benins uh, and their bronze works and timber works of the south and the, and the way in which we think migrants have no skills, but actually there's these incredible people that were being brought uh, to America who were actually in the majority building the country literally with their skills. Um, this is the location of the site. Um, so really it's sort of, it's probably hard to, obviously the panoptic moment. Um, that's, it's the last site that can be built. It's half the size of all the traditional sites. Um, but in a way, that for me gave me a clue as to how to develop this project rather than becoming a palace in that sort of traditional neoclassical sense. It also strengthened my argument about wanting to make a new kind of museum. And I sort of argue that um, you do what m most museum people tell you you can't do, which is to go down 80 feet and then to rise up about another 80 feet above the datum line, um, so 160 feet as a museum experience. And that was important because that was the story, to literally physically bury people into a space with no light and to lift them up into a space with light and to use that as a way to really discuss how this building would support rather than just be a vessel for um, the content. This is a building in its context. So the building in the end is also a study with a sort of hybrid program with this uh, skin system, but the skin system is also now the, the circulation trajectory that wraps around it, and also the framing device which organizes certain specific views to command and reframe the context. Um, in a way, the building uh, demands that you re-look at Washington a new way through the lenses that it operates. We set up nine lenses to the context, but it also kind of creates, um, at, at once it creates disarming hospitality and then traumatic um, perception. You know, you have uh, moments where I wanted to recreate the idea of the porch, but obviously now it's by the water. Um, and it's this moment where we were able to reduce the temperature by uh, as much as seven degrees by just using the water and this inclined plane and disconnecting it from the building. So the stack effects uh, work by coming through and releasing from the back. The building um, is the last moment before the mall, so in a hot summer sun, it's really a very much loved space. The main hall is empty. Um, it's a, just a space for the city where you, the sort of natural lines of the city are allowed to still pass through. There are two doorways. And then you drop down um, into the main sort of 40-foot chamber, uh, sort of cut on the sort of northeast-west axes. And that's where you queue to go into the history galleries, either down this large stair or through elevators. And then you go down into the history galleries and you go through a very compressed space and then you arrive in the main hall, which is this 80-foot uh, chamber where all the stacks of history are played out to you. All the objects in this, library, in this museum are real. There's nothing here that is, um, is a sort of simulacrum. And when there is a simulacrum, it is clearly made not in any realistic form. It is just you know, cast as a neutral form and everything else uh, is, is real. And that is a, a critique, an internal critique, but to really talk about the other uh, African-American museums which spent a lot of time trying to recreate reality. So they're almost Madame Tussauds, what we'd call in England, Madame Tussauds waxworks museums of a sort of reality show of a horror um, without any of the smells or any of the kind of actuality of the evidence. And really, in a way, kind of warps the way in which one is able to understand the history. Everything here is from the rings made from um, 
broomsticks, which are you know, one of the most beautiful things in this museum for me, um, of early slaves right through to the first houses made by uh, uh, you know, um, uh, freed slaves. This is the segregation trains, which are this train sat on a disused yard for many years and was bought by the Smithsonian, reconditioned and brought into the building, sealed. You come up a series of levels um, there's intimacy for certain specific programs. There are very traumatic moments, talking about lynching and all the kind of civil rights stories. These are all dealt with. There are moments where you have Emmett Till's coffin, which um, the family don't want to be photographed, but it's a very powerful space that you come into. Or recreations of the lunch counter, but also using technology to bring the history to that experience of sitting. And then as you grow, as you go through it, you sort of rise through three tiers and you come to a moment. A lot of people are very traumatized by the time they've done that first part of the museum. And then we made this moment as a kind of reflection space where you go up into a chamber with this 30-foot room where water is pouring very loudly um, in this space. And it's a reflection on the words by Martin Luther King. And, um, and then you sort of look up, and then you rise up into the light spaces where you then go into the exhibition spaces um, which then talk about the migration from the south into the urbanized north. And then you are kind of in sort of historical relationships with the site and the content, military, et cetera, uh, culture and arts in the roof. Um, and then these moments where you have these extraordinary uh, sort of vistas to sort of the key monuments. This is a moment where you see the White House and the administrative sort of corner of the Federal Triangle. Um, and then a sort of panorama window over the memorial grounds of of the mall and then um, the building sort of in the front again, maybe at later day uh, and then at night um, when it's lit. Okay, I think I've taken enough time. I'm supposed to do a talk with you. <laughs> Great, thank you. Thank you. Well, we, we, can, we can take a few minutes for, for discussion. Okay. Um, and I thought because, uh, you, you know, to, to, to try and um, keep this as, as, as tight as possible. I'm going to suggest three points about identity, come back to the theme of identity, which is sure. the theme of the festival, um, which you might like to comment on in order. Um, the first is resetting cities, because of course Washington is about being reset. It's about saying the African-American experience, uh, or African-American work, labor, intellectual and physical, uh, was a foundation of the state, but it wasn't properly recognized. This building is a way of expressing that. It's very interesting that it was Bush who insisted on that, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that that is a way of recasting Washington. But also, I think, Moscow, in a strange way, you're, you know, far less dramatic, far less obvious, far less central, you're recasting the city, and also, of course, in Accra, I mean, the, the, the National Cathedral, and the way you showed them out. So maybe um, you could just say a bit about resetting cities and whether it's possible to do it on a small scale uh, as on a large scale, obviously, with less impact. Yeah, no, I think that, um, especially speaking about this notion of identity, I think for me, identity is not interesting when it is about reinforcing um, sort of obvious, um, obvious narratives. And for me, I, when one is talking about maybe the... I, I like to, to say this, the narrative rather than the identity, but if you're talking about this notion of identity, I think what's interesting is that architecture is able to become a form that is able to push... Um, a certain sort of justice into the equation. And I think it's an opportunity where architecture can move past just being in the sum of just building parts, but also can be a critique about questioning um, 
motives and agendas, but also um, create in a way that I think that architects are responsible in that they work for a client, but they also work for the idea of the city, that they're always indebted to kind of make sure the city is giving the best back to its, its um, constituents. So I'm very interested in the way in which, even at its smaller scale, even for me, the Guangzhou project is a, is a device to talk about how any moment can be an opportunity to use, to go beyond just the material excellence of construction. Um, because if that's all we're making, for me, I'm very worried about a world of, of similarities, of kind of confluencing expertise and a kind of, and a, and a, a kind of an elitism which is to do with you know, hyper-commercial liberalism and who, who controls money. I'm more interested in the ability of architecture to be the kind of arbiter of, of ideas and to be the device that can negotiate um, and become a system where, the kind of, where money has totally corrupted the ability to make a sort of meaningful form. If you look at the modernist project, it's all about money now. And mm -hmm. in architecture in the West, it's absurdly expensive. Projects now cost billions, and it's kind of crazy. Um, if you're able to sort of shift that and maybe make something else, um, whether it's small or large, I think this is um, a very interesting um, uh, sort of moment. And for me, this idea that uh, in that shifting, one is not really specifically trying to talk about a national, even though there are moments where there is a kind of national idea, I'm, out, I'm very interested in the forgotten stories. I am very interested in the notion of ruse and what is somehow, in the way in which people forget history or edit history, and that somehow for me, I'm interested in becoming a sort of using architecture to sometimes lift that uncomfortable or comfortable conversation so that it's part of something. So for me in Russia, you know, uh, the, pro the conversation was all about neoclassical buildings and how everybody hated the brutalist buildings or hated the sort of uh, uh, constructivist buildings. They didn't want to see it. And it was a huge discussion to try and find a way to bring that project into it. And we used a lot of technical things, but also in the end, there was a kind of an argument with the board in the end was about, you know, trying to reach back to a kind of uh, uh, something which is forgotten about the Russian identity, that it's not all St. Petersburg, but it is also about this other trajectory, which is not an embarrassment. Well, what was interesting about that was, was your images of the site, particularly when you went there in winter, and the, the milky sun, you know, the northern sun, which, which, which has a profound effect on what Moscow is like. Completely. And, and St. Petersburg to some extent as well. Completely. But Moscow is more, if I may say this, and I apologise to Russians here for, for bolderizing your culture, but it's go more authentically Russian, uh -huh. you know, than, than St. Petersburg to, yeah. to, to, to well, me. St. Petersburg is a, is a kind of introduction of an idea that isn't, yeah. local into a kind of, you know, to try and compete with a European city. And in a way, Moscow, with all its scars and its fissures, it has its, you know, all the kind of tropes of globalization and transnational mm. sort of ideas through classicism. But it's, it's, it's also somehow got the sort of brutality of the real impact of every generation's intellectual and mm. constructed form. And even though a lot of the, re the residue in, in Moscow is deteriorating and people don't like those buildings, so they let them fall apart so they can build because the, the residue still exists and it imparts a kind of providential power, which I think is very important. Sure. The, the second point I just wanted to, to briefly cover, um, is, and you've alluded to it in, in what you were saying just now, is the relationship between story and identity. Mm -hmm. And story has to be personal. It might be the story of totally. more than a single individual, totally. but it has to be personal, whereas identity can be constructed. Completely. And imposed. Yeah. And perhaps you could say a bit more about the relationship. And no, and therein, therein for me, is the kind of 
the difficulty because I have no interest in identity, but I have a lot of interest in stories. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting how it, it gets constructed into the notion of identity. And the idea of the nation state is the story of identity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a construction that's made to give us these sort of systems of bringing mm. sort of a lot of difference under an umbrella and it and has worked um, or is now unfolding um, out of you know what it tried to do for about a hundred years um, and and narratives for me are uh, stories are much more specific in the sense that the story is not beholden to some idea of correctness mm. and and the story is really about that moment in that uh, ability to bring something together from that condition. And that story can be explicit or implicit. And, and that, that story can somehow not have to be emphatic in trying to solve many issues. Mm. I think when that starts to happen, I think that there's a failure mm. because the construction becomes, you know, the fiction level becomes so high that I think it's very difficult to contain exactly what one is talking about when one is talking about identity, except for in the residue of the the after, after effects of the construction of the narrative of identity. But I think, yeah. <laughs> and I don't I mean, want that. <laughs> I'm not interested in the after effects of the What's interesting about stories yeah. is that they can, they can mutate, you know, through an oral exactly. tradition, and they can also spin off into music or exactly. into other, you know, dance, other forms of activity. They're which, freer. Exactly, freer, yeah. but they can set up a sort of process or a system or even a sensibility. Totally, perhaps. and what's beautiful about stories is that somehow encoded in the, the idea of the story is always the, the specificity of the place mm. and the context. Somehow that is always embedded in the story somehow, mm. that most narratives are really talking about the way in which a place does something to someone or a way in which a certain kind of atmosphere does something to someone and a condition does something yeah. to someone. It's somehow the kind of foundation of it all. And for me, that is a clue to understanding how to work with that. And for me, what that does is that it then allows architecture to be more precise in the, yeah. in the engagement. Yes. I mean, and it's the precision is not about being accurate or mm. correct. It's about just being precise to the story. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it, it, it's, it, it, it's confirming, but also reflecting on the story. Correct. Which is what the museum does in Washington. It confirms Correct. and reflects on Correct. both. And allows it to then yeah. re reframe. Yeah. yeah. Final point, quickly, um, is, is uh, and, uh, and you know, that phrase, a paradox of liberty, is obviously yeah. very resonant. And, yeah. and all those high-flown Jeffersonian phrases, which, you know, were fine for maybe 50% of the population of, of the United States at the time. Um, and um, that paradox of liberty, you know, Jefferson and John Adams and others were trying to c construct an identity for the United States. Yeah. But actually, that identity, awful, repressive and tragic though it was, was far more interesting than they acknowledged and admitted. Completely. And I think that, that, that you know, just the final sort of quick point is the way in which a building can be a hybrid and can contain a paradox. How can that work <laughs> well that's that's the beauty of it <laughs> that it's it's somehow flawed in that sort of way it is not attempting to be like the founding fathers you know that's what i mean by this idea of the the myth of sort of creating an identity because it is fundamentally flawed in its intent i mean it has a kind of universal utopia which is kind of beautiful mm. um but it is kind of fundamentally sort of fractured and, and that works for the idea of the nation state, but for, for an architect, I think I'm, I find that it's a kind of fraught area to start mm. to kind of go into because you start to move into, I mean, other architects in the 20th century have attempted to do it, you know, 
um, Adolf Speer tried to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it tragically crashed. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a kind of way in which if you fall into the myth of the sort of fictional identity, you, you go into very difficult areas. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is something about um, being able to use that utopia to question it and to always auto, to put a mirror to it mm. through narrative, which becomes interesting. So that in a way, architecture can also be involved in the activism of society um, to try and engage with the founding ideals that one might be setting up mm. or not. Mm. You know, I think that we're in an age where, because of the density of building, I think we have to find a meaning for building, for me as an architect, beyond just building, because I think then otherwise contractors can just do it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think if, if, if I may, in my simplistic way, yeah. sum up, I think what you're saying is invent new and adapt existing narratives yeah. rather than get fixated over identity. Absolutely. And on that, I think we should close, because I know that Paul Finch is waiting to announce the uh, winners for the categories this Fantastic. year. Fantastic. Thank David, you. thank you. We can, we can just Uh, David, let, let me add my thanks to you. David kindly spoke for us back in 2008 at a little launch reception uh, we held in New York where I think you just started to work. So it's really good to uh, see you at the main event um, after all these years and a great talk. Thank you so much. Um, just before I announce the winners from the category rooms this afternoon, um, there's uh, something even more significant which some of you have all been waiting for, which is the result of the grower prize draw. Um, so while architects have been working hard and presenting, there are pe three people who've won a prize who've done absolutely nothing uh, except put their business card uh, into a, a big pot. So um, the winner of the Sensia Arena, uh, and I suppose it's appropriate because I happen to know him. He's an environmental engineer. Uh, he's going to be truly flushed with success as a result of this prize, is Patrick Bellew from uh, Atelier 10. And there is absolutely no reason to come up on this stage. You, you go to the grower stand tomorrow and, and get an arrangement to, for that to be delivered. And I hope installed. Um, the grower blue tat's been won by Alexander Simonov and the grower red by Hans Heinrich Moller. So congratulations to them for being lucky. Okay. Uh, so uh, inside, we've got um, the first uh, category. I'm going to go and tr go quickly on this. Don't feel you've got to applaud everything because you've all had a long day. Um, and there are drinks and things waiting outside. Okay, highly commended WJ Design for Bow Space in Hangzhou, China. Uh, but the winner of the category is uh, a firm called Concrete for the Harrison Irby Entrance Cafe in the US of A. So congratulations to them. Uh, Civic Culture and Transport, highly commended big Bjark Ingels Group for Lego House, Billund, Denmark. But the winner on this occasion, uh, Blythe Volanield, as they used to be called, BVM for the Australian Embassy, Bangkok. Uh, creative Reuse, highly commended. Uh, Russell and George, Space and Time in Melbourne, Australia. But the winner, and they won a category last night, I think, uh, Studio MK27 uh, for the Frances Mafia in Barcelona. 
uh, the display uh, category is an outright winner here. It's uh, JAC Studios for the Human Art Nouveau collection uh, in Phoenix, Jeju, South Korea. Well done. Uh, hotels, also an outright winner. The Student Hotel Experience Design Team. There's a name to conjure with for the TSH campus in Barcelona. Barcelona, a proper popular city today. Uh, residential, highly commended, note an office for a project in uh, Brussels, but the winner is, I love these names, is the very studio, it's a very, very studio for Che, we che Wang Architects also for the sunny apartment in Taichung City, Taiwan. Uh, we're on to uh, some um, future projects now, so this is commercial mixed use, and there were two, two highly commended in this. Uh, Tabaliolu Architects for the Halic Shipyards, Istanbul, uh, Turkey. And I think I may have to go back one here. Uh, yeah, uh, Nerf Architects for the Muse in Toronto, uh, Canada. But the winner of this category is uh, ADAS for the Taichung Commercial Bank Headquarters mixed-use project in Taichung, Taiwan. So Taiwan's been getting a bit of an outing today. Uh, after Natalie de Vries's lovely presentation uh, on their work uh, there. Uh, culture, future projects, uh, an outright winner, Studio 44 Architects, Museum of the Siege of Leningrad in St. Petersburg, Russia. That's definitely the first winner we've had uh, for a project in that city. Uh, education, uh, future projects, an outright winner, Warren and Marnie Architects with Woods Bagger, uh, for the Lincoln University and Ag Research Joint Facility in Christchurch, uh, New Zealand. Well done. You're ahead of me, House Future Projects. The winner is Next Office for the Guillaume Vault House in Shiraz, uh, Iran. Well done. Uh, master Planning Future Projects, highly commended Field and Collect Bradley Studios for the Kirksall Forge Leeds UK. Uh, but the winner uh, is uh, Sebastian Monsalve and Juan David Hoyos for the Medellin River Parks Botanical Park Master Plan, Medellin, Colombia. Uh, residential Futures, uh, highly commended Team V Architecture for the HAUT project in Amsterdam here in the Netherlands. But the winner, Sordo Madaleno Architectos for this scheme in Mexico, uh, Amelia Tulum in Tulum. Well done. Uh, health, straightforward winner here. Uh, temporary, well, I, I don't know how to pronounce any of this. I'll read out what it says on the... Temporary Associations, A-A-P-R-O-G, or APROG for short, um, <laughs> Dash B-O-E-C-K-X, if I was Belgian I could probably pronounce it, and I think also B2AI, anyway it's the hospital AZ Zeno in uh, Nocker, Belgium, so well done. Uh, moving on, higher education research, uh, our very own Alison Brooks Architects for the Exeter College Cone Quadrangle, Oxford, uh, UK, lovely project, congratulations. Uh, hotel and Leisure, this category supported by Grower, highly commended, frequent winners at this event in the past, Neri and Hugh Design and Research Office for the World Singpu Yangzhou Retreat in Yangzhou, China. 
Uh, but the winner uh, on this occasion is Search for the Hotel Jakarta, Amsterdam, here in the Netherlands. Large-scale housing, uh, this supported also by Grower, commended a wonderful project, Wilkinson Air. This is a gas holders project in London, King's Cross, where historic 19th century gas... I only know about this because I was in a flat there the other day. In fact, it was Chris Wilkinson's flat, um, but it would have sounded bad if he'd been the winner, so I can tell you this now. So the 19th century gas holder structure was dismantled, uh, uh, stripped, cleaned, and absolutely reassembled, and then this wonderful residential complex has been built uh, within it and around it. Worth a visit next time you're in London. Uh, but the winner uh, is Sanjay Puri Architects for the street project in Mathura, India. Uh, mixed use is uh, a, an outright winner, supported by ABB and Bush Yeager. Uh, and this is the Kampung, Kampung Admiralty, Admiralty p- uh, project in Singapore, home of WAF for many years. And it's Wohar Architects. Congratulations to them their characteristic combination of built form and luscious landscape. Uh, Religion, uh, we've got a highly commended uh, fluid motion architects for the Valley Azra Mosque in Tehran. Uh, And the winner on this occasion, a London project, beautiful little project, Sveran Architects for the Belarusian Memorial Chapel uh, in uh, London. A school... Highly commended, uh, Feast studio, studio. This is another Iranian project, this time in Bastam. Another highly commended is Idel Pedersen Hook Architects for the Highgate Primary School teaching spaces in Perth, Australia. Uh, but the winner uh, from Japan, Tezuka Architects for the Muku Nursery School in Fuji City. We're sort of getting there, not too long to go. Shopping, uh, we've got a highly commended, which is the foundry of space for the mega food walk at Mega Bangna at Samut. I'll leave that, it's in Thailand. Um, and the winner uh, on this occasion is Nick and Seke for the Shanghai Greenland Centre. And it says here, dash uh, or, or oblique, Greenland being funny. I'm not sure what that means. Um, we'll find out when it's represented tomorrow, uh, and it's in uh, Shanghai. Uh, the transport winner, I just want to say something very brief about this, because the winner uh, is Grimshaw for the London Bridge Station project, uh, London, UK. Uh, the judges actually had an absolutely agonising decision to make, because they found that there were two magnificent world-class projects. The other one, as you could imagine, being the uh, North-South Line and the remodelling of uh, Central Station in Amsterdam, which, of course, would have been an extremely popular hometown win. Uh, You know, they debated this uh, long and hard. They asked for advice. Could they have two winners, which for various reasons we couldn't do. Um, And uh, Benjamin Kroll have already won the Amsterdam City Prize for for that underground line. So uh, with commiserations to them, because it, of course, is a superb project, but congratulations to Grimshaw for an extremely sophisticated 12-year construction build, uh, and it's pretty damn good. Uh, Villa. Uh, We've got a highly commended... Uh, John Wardle Architects, who spoke on this stage yesterday for Captain's, 
Captain Kelly's Cottage at Bruny Island, Australia, beautiful project that he presented as part of his talk. Uh, uh, but the winner uh, is Kieran Timberlake for the High Horse Ranch, Northern California, uh, USA, and Kieran Timberlake, best known in London, I think, for designing the new uh, US Embassy. Um, well, that's all today's winners. And uh, as, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, in the wonderful dog show that is the World Architecture Festival, yesterday's and today's best of breeds will be competing uh, in uh, crit rooms uh, tomorrow. There'll also be short shortlisted practices competing for prizes, small projects, best use of colour. So look at, your, look at your day guide. There's a lot of stuff to take in tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for your attendance, David. Thank you once again for an inspirational talk. Uh, please enjoy the rest of the evening. <laughs>